Steve, would you open us with prayer? Father, we are delighted to be able to have the special night where some pastors of our church uh, try to address questions and answer them biblically and clearly. And so we, we pray to that end. We pray that this will be an edifying night. We pray that it would be an encouraging night because your word does have answers. And we pray that you help each one to be attentive, uh, to learn, to, to think through biblical truths, and we pray that you will be honored and glorified. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we begin tonight, let me just say that I was a bit overwhelmed at all the questions that came in. If you recall, back before COVID, we used to hold these Q&A sessions about once every six months and get six to ten questions submitted. And it's been almost three years since we held one. The last one was September of 2019, and COVID had hit us in early 2020. And since we've come back to normal operations, we just have been so busy we haven't done one. Well, we had almost four dozen questions submitted. And plus we had questions left over from previous Q&As. And so we have far more questions than we have time to deal with tonight. I spoke with the elders about holding another one of these. And so uh, we're going to do another one on September 11th. So if your questions doesn't get answered tonight, we'll do our best to get to it in the next session. We definitely won't need to solicit any more questions, that's for sure. (laughs) Let me explain what we uh, will do here. First of all, the rules for these sessions clearly stated that we will address biblical and theological questions. So the questions that came in that dealt with other issues, which didn't deal specifically with a biblical or theological matter were eliminated. I'm I'm talking about questions we receive regarding why the pastors dress like they do or how we structure or conduct our worship services or similar matters. If you ask one of those questions, then you need to go to an elder and ask him your question. In fact, a couple of those questions spurred discussions among the elders to think further about them, so we may answer them for you in the future. But for tonight, we're only addressing biblical and theological questions. Many of the other questions deal with personal preference issues or matters for which there's no definitive biblical answer. There may be some biblical principles that we can offer, but there's no specific right or wrong to them. It's not to say that they aren't good questions, but they just don't fit what our purpose is tonight. So if your question is not specifically a biblical or theological question, you'd like an answer, be sure to ask one of the elders. Also, let me say up front that I reworded some questions to make them more grammatically correct in order to read a little better. But I've done my best to avoid changing the meaning of the question in any way. I also combined some questions that were basically the same question. And understand that our answers are going to have to be brief. For the sake of time, we can't answer every question as completely as some would like. There are entire books written on some of these questions. And we're only going to give each a two or three minute response the most. So if you want a more complete information, come see us and we'll tell you where you can go research it. And so as we begin, let me also add that with all the questions that came in from the congregation, we had some questions that came to us from a little group of guys who are inmates at the Florida State Prison System. They're men who've come to faith in Christ and they call their little Bible study group Calvin's Corner. And uh, one of the men in the group is the son of a man in our church. And so they sent him a list of questions. We can't answer them all tonight, but we're going to start with a couple of them first. And so the first one goes to Jack. And the question is this, is baptismal regeneration a damnable heresy? The Church of Christ is huge in this area. And most of the volunteers here in the prison teach this. Does it fall under the category of any other gospel that Paul anathematizes? Well, let me start by saying yes. You know, what you said before about just having to give a short answer is somewhat frustrating. But when we talk about baptismal regeneration, is it a damnable heresy? The answer is yes. And the reason for that is, is, is because it turns baptism into a prerequisite work in order to be saved. And of course, baptismal regeneration, which is practiced by the Church of Christ, also by Roman Catholicism, as they do say that infant baptism is said to save one's soul, preaches, of course, the need for baptism to be saved. And we know that baptism, while 
a subsequent act of obedience signifying salvation, it does not convey regeneration to anyone. When we see such verses in Scripture as Acts 2.28, where Peter exclaimed, repent and be baptized, or verses such as John chapter 3, verse 5, where Jesus said that no one could enter the kingdom of heaven unless he is born of water and spirit, we see that these are verses that are often used to support this doctrine of baptismal regeneration. But Scripture, of course, is very clear that salvation comes only by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And so those who support baptismal regeneration tragically take literally what should be taken symbolically. And most of these references are clear references to the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And that is the cleansing that comes through regeneration as one puts their faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Spiritual baptism, of course, focuses on the issues of the heart, that the cleansing that takes place is through the washing of the word. So water baptism is a sign of regeneration, but it does not convey regeneration. And this, I think, is what Jesus conveyed to Nicodemus and what Peter preached as well at Pentecost. And lastly, if this doctrine were true, then one could wonder how the thief on the cross could ever be with Jesus in paradise. And I think it also blasphemes the finished work of Christ on the cross, saying that it was insufficient in and of itself to save anyone. Now again, this in no way minimizes the importance of baptism. It is uh, certainly one of two ordinances that is commanded by our Lord. And the significance of baptism is that it shows outward allegiance and identification with the Lord Jesus Christ, resulting from that inward regeneration of the heart that occurred at the moment of salvation. And so baptism is our way of publicly confessing that, of identifying with Christ, of identifying with other Christians. And so the change effected in regeneration, repentance, and conversion is signified through baptism. And that's all I have to say about that right now. But I have something to just add. Historically, it's helpful for you to know that uh, a little over 100 years ago, Charles Spurgeon faced this very same issue as as liberalism crept into the Baptist Union in England. It's known as the downside controversy. Spurgeon stood against liberalism, and one of the things that was creeping in was this view that said baptizing someone regenerates them. And Spurgeon fought it. Every generation has some of the same issues, but read church history, read recent history, and you'll see these issues have been dealt with already. Okay. Well, the next question. This also comes from our prison group. And Steve will answer this one. How should we pray against the enemy? Many people here in prison bind and rebuke the demons. Is this correct? Do we have authority over devils? Do we simply resist them by submitting to God? Or should we pray the Lord rebuke you like Michael the archangel did? Well, there is no verse in scripture telling us to rebuke Satan, to rebuke demons, to bind them, to cast them out. There's no verse in any of the New Testament letters commanding us to do this. In fact, that very verse that's used about Michael, the archangel, in, uh, in Jude verse 6. No, it's not Jude verse 6. I'm looking. Uh, yeah, okay. Well, it's in Jude where, where it says that Michael, the archangel, said to Satan as they fought over the body of Moses, the Lord rebuke you. In other words, Michael, even the highest of archangels, did not rebuke Satan. He said, the Lord rebuke you. He didn't, uh, he didn't rebuke him. So no, we're, we're not to bind Satan. We're not to command him. We're not to tell him to, to go to the pit and things like that. The one place in scripture that tells us how to deal with Satan and temptation is Ephesians chapter 6, which is about taking on the armor of God. That's how you resist the devil. And basically, the armor of God is the biblical truths that the Lord has appropriated for us as weapons of protection. And essentially, it comes down to righteous living and godly thinking, biblical thinking, 
And the only weapon that is offensive is the sword of the spirit, which Paul says is the word of God. And even then, we, we're not, nobody wants to have a conversation with Satan. I certainly don't want to talk to him. But we use scripture in our minds to fight against the devil. That's, that's what James means. That's what Peter means when they both say, resist the devil and he'll flee from you. You resist the devil by the truth of God's word. A lot of the stuff about binding Satan and casting him out comes out of the charismatic movement. It does not come from the New Testament. Okay. Well, the next question is addressed. All the elders, all four of us will answer this question, hopefully with just a couple of sentences. It says, since mankind is fallible and God is infallible, we recognize he's always right and we get things wrong. What theological positions, for example, baptism, free will, eschatology, have you shifted or altogether reversed from when you were young in the faith compared to where you stand now? For me, it was the issue of particular redemption. I used to call myself a four-point Calvinist and did for many years and began studying it further and realized I was wrong. Because you were an inconsistent Calvinist, as many of us were. As my dear friend Jack Burns, who's home with the Lord, said, I was a one-point Arminian. So, so. Well, I would say that uh, early in my, uh, when I became a believer, the only thing I knew was uh, an Arminian doctrine. And, and so uh, I remember as a, a young officer, I was uh, arguing with my uh, roommates that that there, God could not be sovereign over salvation and that there was no way that the Calvinism was true. And of, I have, of course, changed that opinion. Yeah, and I have to go along with that. I think uh, I grew up in church, in an Arminian church, where I felt like I could choose God or not and that I had quite a bit of free will. And uh, a dear friend of mine who was a PCA pastor gave me a book on election, and I read it to shred it, and it shredded me. So I uh, came to really espouse the doctrines of grace and to understand soteriology at a deeper level and with a reform view, and I uh, have appreciated that. I had it right all along, so I've not changed it. No, that's not true. Um, just the opposite. I have actually three things that I've changed over the years. The, the first one was church government. Um, when I became a believer, the church that I attended, the pastors I knew, they, they taught, they believed that uh, there should be a senior pastor over the church, and you had, oh, deacons and trustees, but the senior pastor had the final word. So I changed because the New Testament, as I was reading it, I saw, well, that's not what the New Testament teaches. Every church in the book of Acts had a plurality of elders. All the New Testament letters speak of a plurality of elders, so I changed in my view. The second one was I was teaching through 1 Timothy 3, and I came to the point where Paul speaks about qualifications for deacons, and then I thought he mentions deacons' wives. He only says the wives. Well, my dear friend Bruce Mills called me and said, I I think you ought to think this thing through a little bit. I've been uh, doing some teaching and thinking on this, and I think that's deaconesses. And so I went back and studied it, and sure enough, I thought the evidence was uh, overwhelming for Paul teaching about deaconesses and not deacon's wives. I mean, he doesn't say anything about an elder's wife. Why would he say something about a deacon's wife? And then the, um, the third is uh, what Bruce has mentioned, particular redemption. I would call it definite atonement. It's more commonly known as limited atonement. But I, I will tell you why I, I changed. Many years ago, my friend Phil Johnson became a very, very strong Calvinist and believed strongly in limited atonement. And I thought, you know what? I'm not going to just change because he has. I don't want to look like I'm following Phil no matter what he does. I'm his little puppy to just say, oh yeah, I believe that. So for years, I I just put it off. I decided not to even think about it. And then, I, I don't know why, but for some reason, I read James Boyce's book, The Doctrines of Grace. If you've not read that, I highly recommend it. I think he co-authored it with Philip Ryken, and it convinced me that the atonement was definite. Otherwise, it is just possible, and it depends on us. We determine if Christ's death is going to be efficacious, meaning effectual, if it's going to be real. It has to be a definite atonement. Otherwise, it's universal, and that's not what Scripture teaches. So, Okay, okay the next question 
is a big one. It says, what is dis- dispensationalism? I asked one of your elders one time, so you're dispensationalist? And he said, well, not that we follow all the dispensations or something to that effect. Can you please explain then what you do follow in regard to dispensationalism? Is dispensationalism biblical or heretical? Well, first of all, let me say that I was probably the elder that made that statement because I teach on this issue in our membership class. By that, I mean that we don't do like many dispensationalists do who lock themselves into a whole structure of seven dispensations with all kinds of accompanying charts and graphs. There are many dispensationalists who hold to two, three, four, seven, and other numbers of dispensations. In fact, I would argue that every believer is a dispensationalist to a certain degree, a certain sense. If you believe that God's administration of his relationship to mankind before Christ is different than it was after Christ came, then you believe in at least two dispensations. And so we we don't try to get all hard-nosed about how many dispensations there are and what the characteristics are of each. But so what do we hold to as dispensationalists? Well, there are certain essential beliefs of dispensationalism. Number one, there is a distinction between Israel and the church. We believe the church is a distinct organism which began at Pentecost and is not to be identified with Israel. And so we reject replacement theology in which the church replaces or supersedes the nation Israel as the chosen covenant people of God. Dispensationalists believe in a future for the nation of Israel. Uh, The Old Testament promises and covenants were made Uh, with ethnic Israel, and they will be fulfilled with the ethnic nation of Israel in the future millennial kingdom. Secondly, dispensationalists hold to a literal, historical, grammatical interpretation of all scripture, including prophecy. This is a key point. The main difference between dispensationalists and non-dispensationalists on the matter of biblical interpretation is how each camp views the relationship between the Old Testament and the New Testament the presuppositional preference of one testament over the other determines a person's starting point for interpreting the Bible. Dispensationalists want to maintain a reference point in the Old Testament. Uh, We want to give justice to the original intent of the Old Testament writers in accord with literal, historical, grammatical hermeneutics. uh, Non-dispensationalists emphasize the New Testament as their starting point for understanding the Old Testament. So they start with the New Testament to understand Old Testament prophetic passages. And that often leads to a non-literal understanding of Old Testament text because they believe that the New Testament sanctions a less than a literal understanding of Old Testament passages, especially prophetic text about Israel. Dispensationalists affirm the meaning that the meaning of the Old Testament passage lies in those passages, and we believe that the New Testament harmonizes with them and builds upon them. Uh, there's no need for one passage to have priority over others, since all Scripture is inspired by God and makes its own contribution. Uh, all Bible passages complement and harmonize with each other, but no passage overrides the meaning of another passage. Uh, If you want to study this issue further, I highly recommend that you get a little book by Dr. Michael Vlock titled Dispensationalism, Essential Beliefs and Common Myths. Uh, It's a little paperback, uh, only 112 pages long. It's uh, written in easy to understand language. It's available on our Amazon for $7.95. In fact, it's even prime. You can have it within just a couple of days. Dr. Vlock was a professor of theology at the Master's Seminary, and he's now at the Shepherd Seminary in Cary, North Carolina. So that's what we believe about dispensationalism. Now, that leads naturally into the next question, which Steve wanted to address. Bruce, can I just ask, can you just tell the folks, that's a big word, dispensationalism. What, what do we mean by that in terms of, we're we talking about time periods? I don't know. Where, Why don't you tell them? You've okay. you got the microphone. It, it's, uh, it's how God administrates his world and at different time periods. 
And as he progressively reveals things, that's why we think that a critical issue is that Israel is distinct from the church. There are promises made to well, Israel that are not for the church. That's the next question, Steve. Okay. Well, I think I'll it's, take it then. Why do you, it, right. Well, let me read it to you. Okay. Says, but I just, you see, just wanted you to know what a dispensation is. So why do you see the church and Israel as two separate entities? True Israel always was, always is, and always will be comprised of those who trust in Christ alone for salvation. The Gentiles who were formerly not God's people are now God's people because we trusted in the Messiah and because we worship Israel's true king. We are grafted in. And they cite Romans 11. What are your, what's your response? Yeah, well, my, my response is that's wrong. And I think it's wrong because the, the key is Romans 9 through 11. Paul has been speaking in Romans 1 through 8 about the righteousness of God, how he, man has no righteousness. God provides in Christ righteousness. It is, it is eternal. It, you'll never lose it. He gets to Romans chapter 8 and he emphasizes there's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. And all of Romans 8 pretty much is dedicated to Paul explaining what we would call eternal security, once saved, always saved. You can't lose your salvation. And then Paul shifts his, his teaching to go and explain about Israel. Why does he do that? Because Paul understands that there are people in that congregation, the church at Rome, who are reading his letter for the first time, and there are Jewish believers there looking around and seeing that they're just a small minority. Most of the people there were Gentile Christians. And Paul understands that the Jewish Christians had to be thinking, if God is faithful, if we'll never lose salvation, what about Israel? What about our people? It sure looks to us like God has turned his back on the Jewish people in forming something brand new called the church. And so Paul in Romans 9, 10, 11 defends the righteousness of God in dealing with Israel. And the basic teaching is God is faithful to Israel. If he's not faithful to Israel, he won't be faithful to the church. And Paul makes a distinction there. That's the whole point. He's defending the fact that the Jewish people have not been forsaken. And Paul's argument is that God will fulfill every one of his promises, not to all Jews, but to the remnant of believing Jews, the remnant. The remnant theology is a very important point that Paul makes in Romans 9, 10, and especially 11. So um, it's, it's not true that, uh, that we're all part of Israel. And the fact that we're, when Paul says you're grafted in, Gentiles are grafted into the spiritual blessings of the Abrahamic covenant. It never says that, you're, that a Gentile is grafted into Israel. That's an assumption whoever's asking this question is making. It doesn't say that. He's talking in context about the blessings of the Abrahamic covenants, namely salvation in Christ. So, listen, I don't like to promote my own stuff, but I did write a book called God's Plan for Israel, Romans 9 through 11. I highly recommend it because this is not easy chapters to learn on your own. You probably need some help on this. And I tried to write a book that would spell out these deep theological truths in the simplest terms. I think it's very important that we understand what Paul is teaching. God has not forsaken Israel. And that's the whole point of, of those verses. If I can say something real quick in there. Um, one, I, I really enjoy that book, and, and it has helped me uh, immensely with this. The, um, in verse 6 of chapter 9, it says, But it is not as though the word of God has failed. So as Steve was saying, that's Paul asking the question that he can then answer, which is, For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. So he makes the, he makes the point that God always had in mind a select people from Israel to be the ones who are the receivers of the promise. And then just as a, a logical thing here is when the Bible says that the Gentiles were grafted in, that would by definition mean that they weren't originally in the, uh, the, the, the promises that God has made to Israel. And so I just wanted to bring those yeah, points no, up. That's good. Also in Matthew 16, Jesus said, I will build my church. It hadn't been built yet. I will build my church. The church is distinct 
from Israel. Now, the church is made up of Jew and Gentiles who believe, but Israel has not been forsaken by God. Some people think, and this is where Bruce was talking about, some people believe that uh, the church has replaced Israel. But Paul's first argument in Romans chapter 9 is about himself. People say, well, God has is, is forsaken Israel because they rejected Christ. And Paul's argument is, if that's true, what am I doing here? Because the apostle Paul, as Saul of Tarsus, was the greatest Christ rejecter of them all, and yet God saved him. So that is an important argument, and there are other arguments too. But that's have, my answer. We have a lot of questions to cover, Go so ahead. we need to move along. Move and this, along. Next one is, this next one is not an easy one either. And Steve, we're, we're done. it sounds like Steve's talking all the time because we put all his questions, we front-loaded them. Steve, explain why you believe in cessationism. Okay, well, first let me define what we mean by cessationism. This isn't uh, talking about states leaving the union. That's seceding. So, but let me turn to it. 1 Corinthians chapter 14. I uh, have my notes here, so let me pull that. But I wanted to, it's important to read this verse. In 1 Corinthians chapter 14, notice in verse 20, Paul says, Brethren, do not be children in your thinking, yet in evil be infants, but in your thinking be mature. In the law, now he's going back to the Old Testament, in the law it's written, by men of strange tongues and by the lips of strangers I'll speak to this people, and even so they will not listen to me, says the Lord. So then... Then, now notice this, this is the only place in the Bible that specifically directly tells us the purpose of tongues. So then tongues are for a sign, not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. But prophecy is for a sign, not to unbelievers, but to those who believe. So what's he talking about? Well, when he's quoting from strange tongues, they'll, they'll know that judgment is coming. He's referring to the book of Isaiah, which said, essentially, when you hear Babylonians coming and speaking in a strange language, you'll know that God is judging Israel, which is exactly what happened. Israel was taken into captivity, Assyria, and then Babylon's strange tongues was a sign of judgment. Paul is saying that's true with tongues. Tongues, he says, and you can, you can look at it, he, it's very clear, tongues are for a sign. Not for those who believe, for unbelievers. Tongues, it was a sign to unbelieving Israel when you hear people speak in tongues, and they did. They heard in the early church Jewish believers speaking in languages that they had never learned, and then Gentiles as well. They had never gone to school. You will know that judgment from God is coming to Israel. It did come in 70 AD. Titus and the Roman Legion destroyed Jerusalem. The nation was taken into captivity again, known as the dispersion. Judgment did come. There's no need for tongues now. There, there's, there's no need for a sign once the, what the sign was pointing to has come. Secondly, the canon of Scripture is closed. God is not giving any more revelation. I know people say, well, the Lord spoke to me. and the, No, he has spoken in his word. He says that in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. In these final days, he's spoken unto us in his son. It is the apostles and the prophets, and we dare not add to scripture. We have the completed revelation of God. There is no, no need for tongues today. I'd like to add, too, that when you think about tongues, it was primarily given for the unbelievers, uh, not for believers. And when you think about it, in Jerusalem, you had many languages that were spoken around Jerusalem other than Hebrew and Aramaic. And so this validated the person and work of Christ. And of course, as Steve just mentioned, the canon of Scripture had not been completed. And so tongues was a way of verifying the truth of God's Word to those who were outside of that language and were given as a sign uh, to unbelievers that what God said was true. So just to add. If you want to read a great little book on this, it's called The Corinthian Catastrophe. It's a tiny book. You can probably read it in one night. Corinthian Catastrophe. Very helpful. Okay, next question. Steve, why is evangelical Christianity divided into Arminianism and Calvinism? Is Calvinism the same as being reformed? I have no idea. No, I do. I have a little bit of some thinking on this. First of all, let's define our terms. 
Arminianism basically says that uh, you make a decision for the Lord, he didn't elect you. I mean, there are different levels of Arminianism. There are some who believe you can lose your salvation, others who would say, well, look, I, I wasn't chosen, I chose Christ, I decided for him. It's a term that uh, comes from Jacob Arminius, a Dutch theologian who categorized some doctrines and so forth. And, that's, and then John Calvin, the reformer, in response, he categorized some doctrines, and it's called Calvinism. So those are simply labels. Why is it divided? I'm not sure we would say it's divided like that, but why are, are people, Christians, Arminian or Calvinists? I guess because there are still so many people who think that somehow their will is free. To say that God chose us would mean to deny free will. See, I would never say the will is free. Because the, you're, before you're saved, your will is in bondage to your nature. You're not going to do anything contrary to your nature. And the Bible says you have a sin nature before salvation. So the issue is, is not free will. I would say that God has given us, before salvation, freedom to make choices, but only in the realm of our sin, sin nature. In that sense, we were free to, to do what we wanted, but even then, within the sovereign plan of God. So those who are Arminian just do not believe that their will is not free, and I think it's a misunderstanding, and so they think that they have to make some kind of a choice. It's all up to them. Uh, Calvinists, who uh, I, I think are biblical, I'm a Calvinist, I believe in Calvinism, believe that salvation from beginning to end is the work of God. Why? Because we understand the depravity of our sinfulness. We understand that in and of ourselves, we were not capable of coming to faith in Christ. We weren't just blind, we were dead in our sins and trespasses. So that doesn't mean that we don't have a responsibility. We have a responsibility to believe, but even belief is given to us. Even faith and repentance is granted to us. So I, I don't know, maybe some of the men here can explain it better than that, but that's, that's why I think Ar Arminian believers, those who are Armin Arminians, don't understand the depravity of the fall of, of man and somehow think that their will is free. It's, it's, it's not free. And then what was that last part? Reformers are Calvinism. Is Calvinism the same as being reformed? I, I think essentially because the reformers... There's overlap. What's that? There's overlap. Yeah, the reformers pretty much believed in the sovereignty of, of God. And, um, you know, I'm sure that there were some who held to a different view, but essentially they understood that salvation was of God. It went really back to um, uh, Augustine and so forth. So let me say that if you're talking to somebody now who says they're Reformed, normally what that will mean is they are Calvinistic, but there are a couple of other things that people will normally say. Uh, one is that they're covenantal, uh, so as we are dispensational, the others would be covenantal. And then the other is confessional, where, uh, where they would hold in high regard and connect uh, a lot of the catechisms that, were, that have been created over the years. And they would, they would emphasize the, the need to, in your church service, to do things like recite the Apostles' Creed and other things of that nature. So if you're talking to people in the... For, predominantly Presbyterian churches and others, they will not call us Reformed because we are Calvinistic, but we're not covenantal. Okay, we're going to move on to a couple of different questions, not so heavy, but interesting. This is the closest question we have to not being a specifically a biblical or theological question, but I thought it was interesting. It says, what could we learn from comparing King David and Ravi Zacharias? It seems that both were highly flawed workers for God, and one could even make a case that both were irredeemably fatally flawed. Or should we, so to speak, just sweep them both under the rug, particularly Ravi Zacharias? Well, you have to understand, David was God's anointed king of Israel, and although he obviously failed miserably as a father, and he was an adulterer and a murderer, God himself describes David as a man after his own heart. Even though David was a great sinner, there is nothing in Scripture to indicate that his sin was an ongoing pattern in his life. When confronted by Nathan about his sin, David repented, he confessed, he agonized over his sin. On the other hand, 
Everything we know about the situation with Ravi Zacharias is that his sin was a very extensive pattern of ongoing sin over a long period of time, which he went to great lengths to cover up. And although confronted many times throughout the years, he always denied it, slandered the accusers, and apparently never repented. If you've read any of the details from the investigative report into his behavior, which was conducted by his own ministry and his own family members after his death, the details are so disgusting as to be sickeningly repulsive. So because scripture and God honor David, we cannot sweep him under the rug, but rather we learn from his sin and repentance. As for Ravi Zacharias, I don't believe we can endorse or support him any longer. We've removed all of his books from our church library, and we will all wait until we get to heaven to find out if he's there or not. I fear he may be one of those who will say, Lord, Lord, didn't we do all kinds of wonderful things in your name? To which the Lord will say, I never knew you. We don't know. So, Hey, Bruce, can I add just very quickly too? One of the things I was thinking about with David, David had counselors he listened to. David listened to the word of God. When Nathan came and, and rebuked him, he listened. We don't have any indication that Ravi Zacharias had a healthy relationship with his local church. He was traveling all around the world speaking on, on things. Frankly, I heard him. I didn't know what he was talking about. But he would be speaking all over the world. And I, I wondered, did he, did he ever go to church? Did he ever have accountability? Did he have pastors over him that he listened to? David David did. David listened to other, to other people and was humble and accountable. Doesn't look like this Ravi Zacharias was like that at all. We have a couple of questions. We're going to throw at Jack. Jack, this falls into your area with biblical counseling. It says, what does the Bible say about getting along with a family member who is a believer but is difficult to be around? One who causes stress and much tension every time we're together. It's difficult to talk to this person without him or her getting angry or sarcastic. I've tried to love him or her and keep peace, but this nearly always fails. So I usually end up ignoring or avoiding this person. What should I do differently? I think you should move out. No. Um, That's what I was going to say. Seriously, the Bible does have a lot to, to say on this. And the first thing I think is often the most neglected thing. And, you know, we should think about Matthew chapter 7, verses 3 through 5, where Jesus says, we first need to turn the mirror on ourselves. And, you know, we need to be honest about whether or not we're the difficult person in the relationship or we're adding any strife or difficulty to the relationship and at the very least how we may be contributing to the tension and if there is tension we need to repent of that you want to repent of any attitudes of quarreling or nagging humiliating ridiculing and once we have really removed the log in our own eye we can look at the sins of difficult people around us and I think there's some useful tools. I wrote down some here. First of all, prayer is so important. Uh, Matthew 5:44. pray for the person that's a, a challenge. If they're a believer, uh, it's so important to pray. Pray for yourself as well. A lot of offenses we can overlook. Um, certainly we are not wanting to overlook sin or to cover sin, but if you can cover something with love, if it's a minor offense, you have to ask, is this a hill that I want to die on? If it is an offense that you can't seem to get over or you can't seem to cover with love, then you want to go to that person and seek reconciliation, obviously trying to be a peacemaker. You want to be open and honest with a person but caring and concerned. And remember that a gentle answer turns away wrath. And I have found that arguing never really works, but asking questions is a great way. If someone claims to be a believer, then take them to the Word of God and let that be the standard for any kind of tension that might be between you. And, you know, you have a whole Bible in front of you to help you with those kinds of things. Another thing I think that's important is to involve others. If it's necessary, you can get other people. I think this kind of follows the principle of Matthew 18, that if you feel like you're not getting any traction, you can call in the aid of other believers. You have pastors at your disposal that would be willing to talk with you about this. So call in for some reinforcements to seek godly counsel. Sometimes people are not really sure how to handle issues. And as the issues are presented to pastors, we can help you to 
to know how to deal with the situation, how to counsel, and what are some of the things that might be helpful in any particular situation. Also, you never want to spread gossip if you're offended because that's just going to fuel the fire. Uh, You don't want to take those difficult situations and make them worse by spreading gospel or or gossip um, or uh, talking ill about someone. And if you recognize that you're being sinned against, you don't want to return evil for evil. You want to make sure that you go before the Lord, try to keep a godly testimony because a lot of times your testimony before a difficult person can be the very thing that turns them around. Uh, When I was first at Lakeside in the 80s, there was a woman who, when we first started coming here, didn't like me. Can you believe that? No. Um, I cannot believe yeah, that. You can believe that. No, and, and, you know, I, I don't know what was wrong. I, I don't know that I offended her. She just didn't like me, and I, I just was determined to win her over with love. And I just kind of smothered this woman with love. And it did turn her around, and we had a great relationship for many, many Michelle years. Michelle sings so highly Yeah, and thank you, now. Steve. I know she... <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Yeah. Yeah, it was. Where we get along great now, don't we? Um, also, seek the other person's good. When difficult people sense that you're in their corner and that you're trying to help them, oftentimes they're going to soften and and uh, let up a little bit. And then find ways to serve difficult people. You know, love covers a multitude of sin. Um, be. Uh, Go on the offensive. Don't wait for things to happen. Just do good to others. Be willing quickly to forgive. Have a heart ready to forgive and speak the truth in love. So there's just just a few things I think would be helpful. I know I've said a lot, but I just feel compelled to say this. Sometimes, well, this person talks about tension every time we get together. It may very well be that the person asking this question creates the tension uh, by bringing up certain things. So, for example, I'm not saying which side politically you should be on, but if you know somebody's a staunch Democrat, and every time you get together with them, you bring up Donald Trump, you're going to have some tension, or vice versa. So use some common sense. I think there are some people who just feel like, hey, I've got to just say what I have to say. But wisdom would say, you don't have to say always what's on your mind. The other thing, if somebody is an unbeliever and you know that they're going to rant and rave every time the gospel comes up, Jesus said, don't throw your pearls before swine. Meaning that when somebody is that upset with the gospel, there comes a point where you say, you know what, I'm not going to take the precious truths of the word of God and bring it before you so you can trample it. We, we had somebody in our family like that, and I stopped witnessing to this person. We talk about everything like the Buccaneers, we talk about them, we talk about what books have you read, but I wouldn't get into witnessing unless they asked me a question, which they didn't. So, Jack, why are some theological subjects considered secondary issues? Since we agree that the Bible is God-breathed, that it speaks with authority, that it's infallible and inerrant, why can't there be a clear right and wrong positions on these issues? Well, first let me say we need to understand what we mean when we use the phrase secondary issues. And you should know that this term does not imply that these issues are less important or somehow trivial, just as we can say that the minor prophets are no less important than the major prophets. Nor does it mean that we cannot have strong convictions over secondary issues. But with that in mind, when we talk about primary issues, rather, or non-negotiable issues, we're talking about belief of doctrine of which we cannot agree to disagree. So, for example, the doctrines of the Trinity, the deity of Christ, salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, the physical bodily resurrection of Christ... Uh, These are doctrines and many other doctrines that simply cannot be debated without fatally compromising the Christian faith. But having said that, we need to also realize that not every doctrinal issue is a matter of heresy versus orthodoxy. Secondary issues are those uh, issues which, regardless of one's views, they do not compromise soteriological or salvation doctrines or any other doctrines that are non-negotiable. And listen, there are literally hundreds of things that would fall into this category. Uh, What people think of movies or dress or dancing or dietary issues, frequency of communion, mode of baptism, remarriage, church government, eschatology, the list goes on and on. And I would be hard-pressed to believe that Everyone in this room agrees 100% on everything with everybody else in this room. Anybody there? 
And it was no different in Paul's day. In Romans 14.5, we read, one person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. And then verse 10 goes on to say, why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. And I think the, the more important issue that pertains to this question is this, is there, first of all, any disagreement on primary issues, especially the gospel? If there are disagreements on primary issues, then we have every reason to question the validity of someone's salvation, because there are things we cannot agree to disagree on. Also, disagreement on a primary non-negotiable issue is, I think, a reason to break fellowship and possibly to treat one as an unbeliever. But conversely, I think that... um, Disagreement on a secondary issue does not mean we compromise our convictions, but rather we don't break fellowship with other brothers and sisters because of those issues that we may disagree on. So, for example, if you think of John MacArthur and R.C. Sproul, they had a very different view when it came to orthopraxy in some areas. And I don't think they would probably work well together in the same church. Would you define that word? Pardon me? Would you define that word you just Yeah, orthopraxy is, is the is the basically the regulative practice of worship in church. And so there were many things that RC would do in a Presbyterian church and a PCA church that probably would not be practiced in John MacArthur's church. However, they still loved one another, and each one of them considered the other one a dear soulmate, a brother in Christ. They filled each other's pulpits at times. They spoke at conferences. They were solidly united when it came to the gospel. So I think there's a great need when we talk about secondary issues for charity. I think there's a great need for humility in the church uh, when we come up against these issues. But not every issue has a clear right and wrong. Okay. Next question, next couple questions are going to Robert. First one is a short question, but a big answer. 1 Corinthians 14, 14 says, For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What is Paul teaching us? Well, to put a little context with that, um, when Paul was writing to the church at Corinth, it was a church that was characterized by selfishness and and misuse of of the gifts. So uh, we've already had some some instruction as to what the what the sign gifts are, and so. Um, tongues, as, as it says in Scripture and in this passage, actually, is uh, intended for unbelievers. So if I, if I were up here speaking in, in a, a language that was, let's say, Russian, and I was trying to explain to you the gospel or anything else in Russian, and you don't understand Russian, then it's not going to help you at all for me to, to do that. So, but if I'm speaking in English to you, you're going to have a better chance of understanding. In fact, in verse 19, this may be paraphrased or maybe direct, I forget, but it says, Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than to speak a thousand words in a tongue. So the idea is, is in church with other believers, we should be speaking in a way that people can understand, and the gospel needs to be, and the, the Bible needs to be understood by the mind in order to then uh, become something that we act on. Uh, next question is very lengthy. Uh, so for Robert. John 3.13 says, No one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. The first part says, Can we use this verse to refute those who believe in near-death experiences, or that some have died, gone to heaven, and have come back? Does this verse mean that Jesus is the only one who has done this? Second part says, Where did people such as Dorcas, Eutychus, and Lazarus go during the time they were dead before they were raised from the dead? John 3.13 has been used as a proof text refuting those who say they died, went to heaven, and came back. The New Testament states to be absent from the bodies to be present with the Lord. Were Lazarus and Dorcas in heaven or in paradise? How about Eutychus? He died and was resurrected after Christ returned to heaven. Was he in heaven with Jesus or somewhere else? There's a lot there. (laughs) 
and uh, we know we don't have uh, lots of time for these, but um, what I would say is I w in, in, in most cases I would try to stay away from using proof text because scripture is, is not to be taken one verse and, and then applied to all situations, but it's supposed to be used in its context. And and so what, what I would say about this, uh, about the whole question of these near-death experiences is, is that the scriptures give us uh, the authoritative word as to what is heaven-like, what is what goes on in heaven, and everything that God would reveal about heaven we get from scripture. So anyone else who's going to say that they went to heaven and then came back you're not going to learn anything authoritative or, I would say, even um, real from from somebody like that. We, a lot of times, people want to go beyond scripture, but Deuteronomy twenty nine twenty nine tells us that the secret things belong to God, but those things that have been revealed belong to us. So we should be uh, content in in addressing the things that are known, not the things that are unknown. Um, now, in the so do do people have near death experiences? I would I would where they go up to heaven and come back. I would again I would say no to that. Um, it is somebody can die, and if God chooses to miraculously uh, bring them back, then then that is certainly possible. But they're not going to then uh, bring us additional revelation from from that point. Now, on where do the uh, the people go, the saints go, um, that were before uh, Christ was was risen again, and then afterwards, the the Bible gives us a couple of places where it talks about this. One is we talked about the thief on the cross being with with Jesus in paradise. When Jesus told the story of of Lazarus, the the poor man Lazarus and the rich man, it talks about them being in that Lazarus was in Abraham's bosom, which is was a place of of paradise, and and then um, I forget how you pronounce that name, but Eutychus, Eutychus, the one who uh, who died, um, fell asleep during fell the asleep sermon, and... fall, uh, you know, listening to Paul and. And died. That that did occur after. Let this be a warning to all. <laughs> Sleep in church. That that, that did uh, that did occur. But uh, the Bible doesn't give us any indication of of near. I mean, um, you know, seeing heaven and coming back. But I would say that in in the case of Eutychus, that he would have been in the presence of God before he uh, came back. Poor, you think about that, the poor guy goes there and the Lord probably says, don't get too comfortable, <laughs> sending you back. Okay, Jack, here's an interesting question. It says, gyms and other fitness groups promote yoga for health, and more recently there's a great emphasis on mindfulness exercises. Even my iPhone and Apple Watch includes an app for mindfulness. Should Christians participate in these activities which are associated with Eastern non-Christian religious traditions? Well, this is one of those questions that probably would demand a lot more time, but let me just try to summarize this. First of all, should you participate in this? My answer would be an absolute no. Now, this might offend some of you here right off the bat, so let me clarify why I'm dogmatic about this. We need to understand that yoga is fundamentally a Hindu spiritual discipline which is designed for the worship of Hindu gods and to promote Hindu philosophies. And in fact, the practice of yoga in the West is one of the great channels for Eastern religion, and it has infiltrated Christianity to a great extent. And I think that many Christians practice yoga without the slightest thought to what it really represents. In fact, the greatest Indian proponents of yoga who are Christians say that yoga and Christianity are completely incompatible. And the greatest offense to yoga comes from Indians who have turned to Christ because they know firsthand why yoga is practiced. But I know that there are probably some of you thinking, okay, so what is the fuss? You know, what's the big deal about this? Well, certainly there is no offense to exercising. And there's no offense to assuming certain exercise positions. Uh, that is not so much the problem. And exercise, of course, is a good thing. 
The problem is this, that yoga introduces these postures in order for one to clear their mind. And the reason they do this is to see the human body as a means of connecting and somehow coming to know the divine. And this, uh, this Hinduism, this philosophy is based uh, on the worship of, of millions of Hindu gods. And really it's pantheism in the sense that it sees God in everything. And uh, what they're saying is basically the divine resides in all of us and we can get in touch with that. And so yoga says that when you take these positions, you empty your mind. And this is the mindfulness that this question brings up. And that's the problem that I have. Because as believers, we're not told to empty our minds. We're told to renew our minds and to meditate upon the word of God. And I think Al Mohler is right when he says this, while a significant number of Americans either experiment with yoga or become adherents of some yoga disciple, they remain unaware that you cannot separate the physical and spiritual dimensions of this practice. And, you know, I think for a lot of Americans, this is quite a theological blind spot. Uh, And we need to see that the physical of yoga is the spiritual of yoga. In fact, Doug Gruthius says that all forms of yoga involve occult assumptions, even those forms which are often presented as a merely physical discipline. And again, I want to reiterate, there's, there's nothing wrong with physical exercise, um, but we're warned in Scripture that we're to avoid all appearances of evil. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 15 and 16, Paul warns, what accord has Christ with Belial, or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? Um, Most gym classes and most formal exercise classes that teach yoga, the problem is, is that they focus on the mindfulness of this practice. And that's where I have a real problem with it. So I would say exercise, yes, uh, but stay away from these yoga classes and don't ask what's wrong with it, but ask how is it going to make me more Christ-like. Okay, Steve. When you talked through Acts 26, you said that Paul was a member of the Sanhedrin before his conversion to Christ. That's based on verse 10 that says that Paul was one of those who voted to put believers to death, and that kind of authority belonged only to the Sanhedrin. If that is so, as a Pharisee and a rabbi, Paul would have been required to be married, yet Scripture seems to indicate he was single. How do you explain this? Well, the... The trouble people have, the problem people have is they have read that uh, all members of the Sanhedrin had to be married. That's not necessarily the case. Um, My research indicates that it may very well have been um, years after Paul was a member of the Sanhedrin that that rule was passed. We don't know if at the time of the Apostle Paul or when he was Saul of Tarsus, if he had to be married to be a member of the Sanhedrin. So that's one thing. We, we just don't know. What we do know is this. Paul was single when he wrote 1 Corinthians chapter 7. There's no question about that. <clears throat> the question would be, was Paul ever married? Well, it's possible. Scripture doesn't say. Maybe he was married and his wife died. Maybe he was married and, and she divorced him when he became a Christian. We don't know. But we, we just have to say it is not for sure that uh, all members at the time of Saul of Tarsus had to be, members of the Sanhedrin had to be married. We don't know that. So I don't think there's any conflict there. Okay. Next question I'll answer. Uh, says, Numbers 5, 11 to 31 describes how a man should proceed if he believes his wife has been unfaithful. Verses 21 and 27 mentions thigh rot in the New King James Version, and the New American Standard says, her thigh will shrivel. I can't find a clear definition of what that actually means in my study Bible or in any online resource. What is thyrot? Recently, I've seen secular abortion supporters claim that this passage describes how to perform an abortion. They attempt to shame Christians for being against abortion by claiming the Bible actually teaches how to perform one. Even without knowing exactly what thyrot is, it seems clear this passage has nothing to do with abortion. How would you respond to such a claim? Well, the person that submitted this question wisely perceives that this has nothing to do with an abortion. 
the passage describes a ritual that a wife went through if her husband suspected her of infidelity. The term thigh, as it's used in the Old Testament, was a term that referred to the, often referred to the sexual organs. Uh, what took place here was that if a woman was guilty of adultery, God would supernaturally cause her to suffer what is known today as a severely prolapsed uterus. Uh, that results in an inability on the part of the woman to bear children. It can result in edema, uh, the retention of fluid in the abdomen, causing swelling, as is mentioned in the passage. And, but because God is the one who instituted this ritual, this was his supernatural punishment for an adulterous woman and had absolutely nothing to do with performing an abortion. Uh, and this was limited to the nation of Israel under the Mosaic law. Uh, in this age, the process God uses for such sin is church discipline. And for those who are truly his children but are still unrepentant, Hebrews 12 says that he will discipline his children. And according to 1 Corinthians 11, it's often by sickness and even death. Uh, so that's the simple answer uh, to that question. It's, uh, yeah, it was a good question. It required me to do quite a bit of research, I will admit. Um, we'll have time for one more question. And then we're going to stop. Robert says, my Bible reading plan listed 2 Samuel 24 and 1 Chronicles 21 on the same day. It seems these chapters are describing the same event, but they begin very differently. 2 Samuel 24 says the Lord moved David to number Israel. 1 Chronicles 21 says Satan moved him to do it. How are we to understand this seeming discrepancy? So in that in the passages, I would say that it is describing the the same event in here. So in Second Samuel twenty four, in verse one, what it says is again the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and He incited David against them, saying, "Go number Israel and Judah." Whereas in the other passage in First. Chronicles 21, it says, Then Satan stood against Israel and incited David to number Israel. I think that the what we understand, have to understand with this is that God is always sovereign over all things, and it is always his decree that does occur exactly as he has decreed, and he knows the end from the beginning. So throughout Scripture, we have uh, cases such as Joseph standing before his brothers at the end of uh, Genesis in chapter 50, where he says that the, they intended selling him into slavery for evil, but God intended it for good. So for what was the reason that uh, Joseph ended up in Egypt? We can truthfully say that it was God who did that, and we can also say that it was his brothers who were responsible for it. So... Uh, so that we, we don't want to talk about God being passive in these situations. Sometimes people say he allowed something to happen, but, but God is not passive. He, uh, he uses different instruments to bring about his will, yet without taking away their responsibility, the brothers still acted sinfully towards him. Another examples of these things would be is in Acts uh, 7, where it, it talks about all that the Herod and Pilate and the Jews and, and the Romans had gathered together. And then it says to do everything that the, that the Lord had, uh, had chosen to be accomplished there. So that the, again, what we see is that when, when Herod and Pilate and them were acting, they weren't saying, I'm going to do what God uh, wants me to do. But in fact, they did um, act in uh, and accomplish exactly what God had uh, caused them to do. So then one last thing is I would say if we go to Job and we looked at, the, at that picture, we see that while it was Satan who uh, afflicted uh, Job and caused the calamities there, we, we also see that it was he had to come before God and God is the one who, who gave him the go-ahead to, to do those things. So 
was it Job who was, I mean, God uh, who was afflicting Job, or was it, or was it uh, Satan? And I would say that in, in these cases, it was both God and Satan. God used Satan as the instrument to accomplish this. So when we look at this passage, it talks about that, uh, I would say that God used the uh, Satan as the means to tempt David to, to do what David wanted to do, which was to get a census. And this was in, in violation to what he should have done, because even as one of his key ministers said, we should be we should be focusing on trusting in the Lord in this and not counting the men because the idea of counting the men was to was to show how strong you were and that you would be able to to win battles and accomplish the things you need and instead of trusting in the Lord to protect them he was numbering his men to see how strong he he would be in this case so i would say those are the two things that that harmonize this passage is that in fact God used Satan to tempt David in this, into this action. Well, we ha- we're going to have to stop. We have, we've done 16 questions and we had 23. I still have 21 more for next on September 11th. I think you can figure it. It's, we may have to add a third Q&A somewhere to get through all of these, but there's a lot. So Jack... Would you close us with prayer and we'll be dismissed? Well, Father, we thank you for the authority of your word. And I thank you, Lord, that you have been so faithful to us to reveal yourself through the written word, through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And I pray, Lord, that we would constantly seek to be workers who need not be ashamed, that we would, as your disciples, Lord, continue to strive to understand your word better. Lord, not just for the sake of knowledge, but for the sake of bringing you glory, of showing the love of Christ, Lord, that we would stand upon sound doctrine with a sense of fervent love. And I thank you for our congregation. I thank you for these questions. And just pray, Lord, that uh, it will, again, help us to grow in our understanding of what you've done and who you are and the grace that's offered to us. And just pray now that you dismiss us with your blessing. We thank you for this evening, and we just thank you for all you've done in Christ's name. Amen.